Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome back to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast from Netflix. I'm Ravada, your host for this week's episode. Here on You Can't Make This Up, we go behind the scenes of Netflix original true crime series and films with special guests. This week, we're diving into The Innocent Man. This six-part docuseries follows the life of Ron Williamson, who sat on Oklahoma's death row for 11 years for a crime he didn't commit. It's based on John Grisham's best-selling true crime book of the same name. We brought in true crime authors, podcasters, and real-life married couple, Rebecca Lavoie and Kevin Flynn, to interview the series director, Clay Tweel. And now, here's Rebecca, Kevin, and Clay. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. And I'm Kevin Flynn. And we are true crime authors and the hosts of Crime Writers On podcast. And these are their stories, the Law and Order podcast. We're here with Clay Tweel, the director of The Innocent Man, which we're just going to say it's so, so, so good. good. Clay, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I got to say that Rebecca and I looked at each other and we said, what are we going to do if this sucks? <laughs> <laughs> and we have to talk to Clay. Yeah. But this does not suck. This is a really good tight six episode documentary congratulations oh thank you yeah we uh we tried to keep it tight we were you know basing a lot of it off of a john grisham novel so trying to keep it in the vein of the page turner that you're going to be able to get through quickly so would you consider this an investigative documentary like some are where they're trying to go out and turn over the rocks or is this more a narrative uh documentary what do you think i you know i think it's uh it blends a lot of genres. I don't think it's necessarily a whodunit. I think there is an element of that as you're seeing these cases unfold and over the many years, you know, suspects sort of come in and out of the spotlight. But for me, really, it's more on the, you know, social justice, uh, criminal justice reform uh, awareness side of things. So that's by the by the time that you get to the end, I hope that the audiences seeing these crazy events play out, but they're more acutely aware of perhaps the the flaws in the justice system that made this possible. Now, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that you said, you know, this is based on a John Grisham book. John Grisham is in the documentary. You talked to him. Um, how did that happen? Like, what was the connection yeah. between the John Grisham book? And I know that these things get developed into projects. How did you so get forth, your chocolate but... in his peanut butter? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so... Our other executive producer, Ross Dennerstein, he had been chasing the rights to this story to John's book for a long time, and he had just gotten them, and Ross and I were having lunch, and uh, he was like, you have to read this book. I think you would really enjoy it, and uh, he sent it to me, and I read it over the weekend, and I was like, oh my God, this is, it is crazy. It's got, it's got so many twists and turns, and 
Um, both Ross and I felt like it had the potential for good sort of longer format, long form storytelling for a series. And it just so happens that um, Grisham now lives for the last 25 years has lived in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is my hometown. So yeah. oddly enough, you, you got up to him at the Piggly Wiggly, and, <laughs> Health you know, a Whole Foods, yeah. <laughs> cornered him, cornered him. And uh, uh, no, we oddly enough, we went to the same church um, back in oh, Virginia okay. for many years. And uh so it's meant to be yeah, exactly. It's a small world we live in. Now you actually went to Ada, Oklahoma, and interviewed a lot of the subjects in this documentary, right? Many, many times. Yes. Okay. Well, there are a lot of characters and a lot of storylines that I want to get into. But the first thing we absolutely have to talk about because she's so, I think, atypical of this. You know, I'm, I'm calling it a character. Obviously, this is a real person whose family experienced a real tragedy. Um, but in terms of being atypical, in terms of her stance on it and sort of not being put out there by prosecutors as like the that the person for whom they are continuing to keep somebody in prison because she's a family member or a victim and also just an amazing human being. Is Who are you talking about? Peggy. Yeah. A.K.A. Peggy. Peppy. 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 Um, I'm wondering if you can just tell me if she is everything that I imagine her to be in person and what it what it was like speaking with her. I mean, she's the mother, obviously, of uh, one of your victims and uh, Debbie Carter, and she got really emotional when talking to her, but she also is quite a personality and I think the emotional core of this documentary. Uh, I'm glad you said that. I feel the same way. Um, everyone on our crew loves Peppy. And so, I mean, by the time that we finished that interview, which was, I think, you know, three or four hours, we all were, like, giving her hugs as we were leaving and you know, she calls everybody sweetie, and it's like she's yeah. she's an amazing person and has been through so, so much. I mean, I feel like Christy uh, says that in, in the series. She's like, you know, this woman has taken so many, um, has had so much trauma in her life, and she's had uh, a daughter killed, and she survived breast cancer, but, like, she just keeps on ticking and, and keeps a positive outlook. It's It's amazing to watch. In our line of work, we also have done the thing where you go and interview the family member, the, you know, the survivor, and sometimes they can be very stoic. And so when you were going in for the first time, what, what were you expecting Pepe would be like? I thought that she would be more reserved and, and possibly more guarded about what her emotional state was as all of these things were unfolding. And, you know, both her and Christy said something to me I'll, I'll never forget, which was that they they just for a long time couldn't understand why uh, Debbie's case kept being brought back up into the public spotlight, and you know they had to they had to live through the trauma of um, four different tr- trials. They you know which is very hard on them to have to relive that night and think about it and hear people talk about it and then. There's been Dateline specials and here and a book by John Grisham. And then here I am again, putting a camera in their face and asking them to recount it. But they said, you know, they sort of at this point have accepted it and feel like it is Debbie's legacy to Mm -hmm. to put a spotlight on the wrongs that happened in her case. So that just set my mind at ease that I didn't feel like I was going to like be, you know, causing further pain by having them talk about it. You know, I think one of the things that's interesting, and perhaps it's because, you know, you have here victims, family members, and, and we'll definitely talk about Christy because she's also a super fascinating character in this story. But 
you know, what, maybe it's the difference is because they have come around and they actually believe the new narrative of the crime versus mm-hmm. the first narrative that was that was put forward. But in that story in particular, in, in you know, in the story of Debbie's murder, you have really both sides of it. You have Debbie's family represented, of course, and then you also have Ron Williamson's relatives talking about his life and his time behind bars. It is an incredibly, I think, balanced telling of this story, and that can be so incredibly challenging, as Kevin and I have learned writing books. You very often get just the family or just the wrongfully convicted person or just the, you know, the the perpetrator's family. You You don't typically get everyone was so was, was your experience going in that you know everyone was kind of on that page that they think this is an important story and wanted to share it yeah i mean that's what i told everyone in introductory conversations anyone that i talked to whether it was trying to talk to the prosecutor bill peterson or trying to talk to um ron's family or anyone it's just i'm trying to tell uh get them as many different sides of the story as possible and try to do it justice because i think it is it's complex in a lot of different ways. It's um, there's many characters. There's you know different levels of people looking good or bad at different parts of the story. So um, I felt like the the best way to counteract that was to to get as many people's voices as possible. Ron Williamson is also a very interesting character, very sympathetic, and not without his own flaws. So uh, what was your take on? his personality, and his situation? I mean, my take on Ron was that he was pretty severely mentally ill um, and that, uh, you know, he's someone who was sort of a a town hero turned Boo Radley. Um, And he, when he came back after um, failing in the minor leagues for baseball, he just was both abusing drugs and alcohol and also starting to show real signs of mental illness and the combination of those two things is is pretty wicked you know the 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 mental health issue here is not highlighted a, a bunch in the series but it's certainly a a pretty strong part of uh, of Ron's character and how we were thinking about you know what he did and um what gave him that that bad reputation it's funny because as we were watching Ron in the courtroom and like hearing those tapes of him tossing the table mm-hmm. over um, and you hearing him sort of like rant in the courtroom in during these proceedings, part of me is like, obviously, he is ill. But also part of me is like, that's exactly what somebody who's innocent wants to do, but usually has the restraint not to do because their lawyer tells them not to. I found myself, you know, really liking him, even though obviously he was really troubled, like I really understanding and believing that he didn't do it. When I heard him kind of making these protestations and flipping the table and, and you know, filming that video yeah. in prison, I mean, it just, it was very, it was laid very bare. Like it was, he was very believable as somebody who didn't actually commit this crime. Yeah. I mean, it, it's Kim Marks, who was the investigator for his appeal and was the one that shot that video of him. Um, she had many, many stories, uh, as did um, some of the other lawyers who were involved, uh, just about visiting Ron and how he would go, he'd just go crazy. I mean, it's in Grisham's book quite a bit about what Ron experienced on death row and having uh, jailers, the the people that worked at the jail, um, not giving him the right dosages for his uh, 
schizophrenia or bipolar or using the intercom to sort of taunt him and pretend that it was uh, Debbie Carter's voice just to sort of um, just to mess with him. So, yeah, he he suffered uh, quite a bit while he was was in prison and and the conditions of that death row were, um, I think, cited by Amnesty International as being unfit while he was there. Hmm. Now, Tommy Ward was a minor character in John Grisham's book. Why did you decide that he should be a bigger focus in the documentary? Well, for me, it really comes down to the fact that there's so many parallels. Um, There's similar uh, cast of characters. There's overlapping um, jailhouse snitches. There's Uh, It's the same small town. Both of them have dream confessions. There's like many, many ways in which these uh, cases overlap. And then you also have the added element here that Tommy and Carl are still in prison. Their appeals are still happening. They're still um, lawyers and investigators trying to dig up uh, new evidence and find ways to um, prove their innocence. So I I like their, their... the being able to sort of ping pong between the two cases and have a real time element that adds a little bit more stakes than just a retelling of past events. I thought that was actually a really interesting choice. And this is one of those documentaries, multi part documentaries, where the first episode it ends and you think, you know, you think you know what's going on. And then boom, you're into a new narrative and you're like, oh, okay, well, everything I just saw was BS. And, you know, all of those horrible, um, Uh, interrogation techniques that we hear about. That's what that was. And you sort of are able to put it together. But one of the things that Christy Shepard says, Debbie Carter's cousin, again, an atypical family member of a victim, is she, you know, calls her cousin's death. She was just collateral damage. That it changed everything about our family and about how certainly I viewed the world, certainly changed everything for my aunt but that she was really just collateral damage and something bigger is sickening and that we don't even know what all, I mean, it's 30-something years later and we don't even know what all that is and how all that fits together. She basically intimates that it's, you know, part of a much bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And when we hear the Tommy Ward story, we kind of get at that a little bit. But I'm wondering, like, what do you think the bigger picture really looks like? Do you have ideas about that? Even if you don't want to have to commit to what it is. But but do you have sort of a sense of what that bigger picture might be in Ada, Oklahoma, and their criminal justice system? Yeah, I, I think what Christy is referencing there is uh, this idea that there is a pattern of uh, police work and um, prosecutions that might not be on the up and up or um, could be more highly scrutinized. So she's she's sort of it's a it's a hint for what's to come in the last few episodes uh, where we explore, you know, the, the not only the flaws in the case, but other connections that are a little more dubious of um, the investigators and having evidence disappear or having key suspects overlooked. So, you know, I think that that there's at this point now been four people exonerated in Ada, Oklahoma during the time period that uh, these prosecutors and police officers were were working. And it's um, pretty high batting average. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yep. I mean, for for the, based on the national average and based on it being a town of 15,000 people, it's uh doesn't look great. Hey, you, you don't take a position in the documentary, but do you think Tommy Ward did it? I 
personally tend to believe he did not. Um, And I think that certainly it is very, very clear to me that there's no way that there's no evidence that should keep him in jail. And that, Mm. uh, you know, there's no physical evidence. Um, Eyewitness testimony is very shaky and or manipulated by the way that it was presented to those eyewitnesses or to the court. And yeah, I just don't think that he should be in jail. Honestly, I I think that uh, I talked to Tommy probably once a month. I have uh, since we did our interview with him um, about a year ago. And I don't know, guys, I mean, like, I, I feel like I'm a a decent read of people. And I just, I'm like 99% sure, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, you yeah. can't know, but 99% is, you know, that's reasonable doubt, sure, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the thing that strikes me, and this is not obviously the first story in which we've seen this, is that, you know, he and Carl gave these confessions, and then the body— with the dream confession. <laughs> exactly. You had a dream. You <laughs> had must a dream. have done it. Yes, I saw my hands being rinsed off in a sink. Okay, that means you must have done it. <laughs> um, but then the facts, as uncovered when they actually discovered Denise's body, completely don't match— the stuff yeah. that was in those super weird confessions and, you know, in Carl's poor Carl's confession describing, you know, the stabbing and how the crime was committed. And that's just not what happened. And you would think that in a trial and a, and a conviction that hung on the facts as laid out in a confession, you would think that when the facts don't bear out that way, it would be harder to reaffirm that conviction. You would think that, right? You would think so. But it's so the video evidence is so compelling and people just refuse to believe that someone would confess to something that brutal that they didn't do. I mean, the the, the public consciousness and awareness around uh, coerced confessions is just starting to turn here, I think, in the last probably five to 10 years. So back in the 80s, mm-hmm. no one is going to really buy the fact that police would be able to even do this. Like, there's just no way to do it. The other thing that that internally we could never really wrap our heads around was like so so let's get this straight like game it out for a second Tommy and Carl had to have gotten together and had the same story that's wrong in all the same ways mm-hmm. yeah and related With blouse yeah. and everything yeah right? so they so yeah. like in the 6 months that they were um after the crime but before that they were arrested they like hatched this story that was completely false together and then we're like hey if we ever get brought in by the way like let's this is what she was wearing yeah (laughs) let's get this straight yeah this lavender blouse let's intentionally give it wrong we're playing three-dimensional chess exactly that way if they get us we'll we'll confess but wrongly confess so then (laughs) they have to let us and then our conviction will be overturned 10 years later all we got to do is send them to the wrong place where the body is exactly yeah Yeah. Yeah. exactly makes no it's it's an absurd concept right yeah it does it does make me you know when people say i would never confess falsely people who say that I, i always want to say to them well you would probably not be in that situation because you're not poor and you don't live in a community where you know the police are running drugs maybe and like just arresting people to cover up their own crimes but if you were in that situation you have no idea yeah, how long were they interrogated for before they were videotaped do you know yeah tommy was brought in a little before 10 a.m i think and then uh the cameras went on around seven um oh yeah so that's, nine hours yeah that's that's quite a long time um, people don't get it. I say, I say, imagine being in a fight with your spouse, the same fight 
for seven or eight hours. <laughs> At the end, you will say anything to end that fight. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I was the one who didn't replace the toilet paper. It wasn't the kids. It was definitely me. You're revealing way too much about our relationship. <laughs> but there is, a, <laughs> there is a psychological comparison to that, too. It's like you're worn down. And you and if you're hearing these things, you start to doubt yourself. Right. Yeah. Because I would say after a couple hours, maybe I was the one who didn't replace the toilet paper. Surely even a serious case where you're accused of a capital crime, you end up starting to wonder. You get gaslighted. Yeah. You end up gaslighting yourself. Yeah. Do Denise Haraway's family think that the right guys are behind bars for this crime? I, they were absent, uh, noticeably, you know, that sort of family members of Denise were absent from the documentary. So yeah. I was wondering what their stance on this might be. Yeah, um, they have differing perspectives across some of the people in her family that we were able to get in touch with. But for the most part, I do think that, uh, yeah, they still believe that Tommy and Carl did it. And, you know, it's we, we tried to reach out and see if they wanted to be a part of it, but we also want to respect their privacy and not mm. have to, again, make them relive anything that they don't want to. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think... Just to to have a parallel to Christy and and Pepe here, you know, if if they hadn't had a more concrete resolution to their case, I'm not sure if they would have been able to accept it and many years later talk to us either. Oh, you mean if uh, the real guy was not eventually arrested? Correct. You know, if if he was just if if the wrongfully convicted guys had been let out, but there was no other perp, you're thinking that they may not have made that turn. Correct. I, I don't think yeah. that they would have. Um, I'm just sort of positing a guess here, but I, I from uh, getting to know them, I think that they would still be, uh, you know, struggling with that. And in most cases, um, that's what happens. In most exonerations, you're not able to find the person who actually did it. Right. Yeah. The thing with Christy that like really kind of blew my mind is not only did she go from. Um, you know, these are definitely the guys and this is the system works. She's come all the way back around where she is an advocate for the exonerated and uh, for the formerly incarcerated. And that is just a huge whiplash. I mean, yeah. uh, Were you I mean, were you surprised at like how passionate she is about that? Yeah, it was one of my favorite lines in the whole show. She said that the she sympathizes with the wrongfully convicted because she feels that the justice system has failed both of them equally. And mm-hmm. and so she's, she found this way to sort of um, have a bonding with these people, and she, she holds that support group. And, um, yeah, it's it's pretty incredible the way that uh, she's dedicated her life in that um, to criminal justice reform. It really is. And, you know, because prosecutors do very often sort of pair up with families of victims and that even when— Ultimately, the truth does come out. Families of victims are still sometimes very slow because the prosecutor's office is the one that works with the, you know, the families of victims, the police and the prosecutors. They have victims advocates. They have, you know, liaison officers, that kind of thing. And they're very much families, not to their it's not their fault, but they're definitely very much on the law and order side of these equations. And it can be a very difficult bridge to cross. And I don't know, that was the other sort of center of the film for me was Christy. I just thought she was super extraordinary. Yeah, she's, uh, I mean, she's a spitfire and she just is relentless in her pursuit of justice and wanting to find answers and sort of, like I said, carry on Debbie's legacy. I mean, one of the things that she told me that 
really started her down this pathway too was in all these articles about the case happening, it was always the Ron Williamson case. And it was just like, oh, 21-year-old dead waitress. And she felt like Debbie was getting written out of the narrative of this case. And and right. so it was very important for her to to be a spokesman for the family and be able to sort of compartmentalize some of her emotion just to carry on for Debbie. So, Clay, I want to talk a little bit about the tradecraft mm. of this doc, okay? Uh, first of all, the visuals on the reenactments. I want to point out one thing that I really liked. You, you, these get done a lot, and sometimes they're done, you know, uh, very well and sometimes ham-fisted and— there were a couple of this this kind of shot came up over and over again, and it not over and over again, but just enough. There'd be a close up of someone smoking a cigarette. Yeah, and to me, it was so evocative of something that you don't need to say, but is just sort of understood about socioeconomic place, about time, about location. That's that you see somebody. Still smoking a cigarette because today it's like you don't you have to hang out outside of a very nice restaurant and watch somebody, <laughs> yeah. you know, very, very surreptitiously puffing away. I thought that that visual was very clever and very powerful. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah. The actors were not pumped to be having those herbal cigarettes around all the time. <laughs> um, and nor was the crew because they smell god awful. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's just sort of like in trying to give the, the flavor of the era and the time and place. Exactly. Um, everybody smoked and it's referenced in us in some of the original court documents for, for certain parts of the case. So we wanted to make sure it was in there. What else did you try to do to sort of, again, grab that sense of place and time? Um, because I, again, I did like the visuals, but I want to hear specifically what you purposely tried to do. Yes, because this is well done. I mean, yeah, we, we well watch done. so many things that have way too much, way, way too, too many, many drone shots. Way too many. <laughs> you had enough drone shots that were done very well, but not too, not way too many. Not too, yeah. Way too many reenactments. Yeah. Uh, way too many. It was many. so balanced yes. on all of that. It really, it was. really was. I agree. Thanks. Well, yeah. I mean, we we try to be conscious of uh, of that of not too many drones, and and also for the reenactments, it was something that we wanted to do from the beginning, and it was part of the original plan um, because. There is, uh, you know, we thought that uh, we wanted to use them a little bit as like a impressionistic, surrealist uh, touchstone for the show. There's there's mm-hmm. so much discussion about dreams and different people's perspectives that we felt like the reenactments, you could sort of play with both. Um, and in a couple, especially in episodes two and three, were sort of like putting you inside Tommy and or Ron's head as they're sort of having these mm-hmm. like almost fever dream visuals that end up coming into play and you learn what they are later. Well, I say the visuals of the show were also important in helping trying to set the tone and, and bring Ada to life as its own character. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's sort of a mix of a Southern town and a, like a Western town. Um, yeah. And so there's, there's a lot of churches. I, I heard somebody say that it was the, the buckle on the belt to the Bible belt, which I liked that. <laughs> um, but it's like, uh, you know, there's there's these rural landscapes that I wanted to take advantage of. And uh, Nicola Marsh, who is the cinematographer, is amazing. She did such a, a great job. And, like, we were talking about getting these very super wide landscapes so that you know that Ada is sort of 
it's out there. It's it's in a little bit of an island all by itself. Um, it's sort of like an hour and a half from any major city or highway. So hmm. um, really having that that sense of place and being like out in the sticks a little bit, I think added a little bit more of a, a creepy vibe to the show. All right, so we need to talk about the. I like to call him the villain in the story because it's just antagonist. That's more, the antagonist. Yeah, yes, that's, uh, that's morally neutral. Okay, so what about the antagonist? You had a question about the antagonist. Yeah, Bill in the story. Peterson. Yes, I think. Well, just actually, I was just going to ask a question, but how about just spill some tea, man? What is with this guy? <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, uh, look, I tr- I tried to talk to to both Bill Peterson and Chris Ross. We talked to them uh, off camera when we first started, and uh, and like I said, guys, I went in saying I want as many viewpoints and perspectives on this case as possible. And the only way that I'm going to get your point of view is if you tell it, because nobody else can do that. Right. Um, but uh, I think that you know it's not a it's not a great moment in their lives to try to relive this either if they were being honest so they they didn't want to talk about it there are certainly for tommy and carl's cases that are still in appeal they did not want to talk about anything that could be messing with the current prosecutor's case against them Mm, but mm -hmm. you know like i think that uh it's it's tough i've talked to other prosecutors and it's i get a mixed response of um you know, no, you should never talk about any of your cases. Just like play it safe. That's the way to. Um, that's the way to 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 maintain as much integrity as possible. And I've talked to some prosecutors who are like, oh yeah, the guy's retired. I don't know why he's not talking to you. He can talk about yeah, he- like the judge. Jesus Christ, you got the judge. That's right. Our mind was blown. <laughs> Anytime you get a judge, that's always amazing. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. And he had just retired as well, so we we caught him at a good moment. Um, yeah. Right. Well, Bill Peterson has given other interviews, we should say. We saw some of them yeah. in, in this documentary. But here's the thing that, you know, really confounds me is that it is surprising to me as somebody who consumes a lot of this kind of media that you know Bill Peterson had a, a good guy moment in deciding to, you know, go with the facts and the exoneration and the first and the one exoneration that does happen. And that he wouldn't choose even to talk about that. Like, I did the right thing in this instance once we realized that these weren't the guys, you know, and that he's just so closed off to the possibility that he could have ever made that mistake at any other point when we actually know that he has because there have been other (laughs) exonerations. I mean, not again. If nothing else, I if I were him, I might say, I'll talk to you. But I really just want to talk about, you know, this case and how we got to the truth. I think he probably thinks every time I do this, I end up looking bad. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. He's, He's been burned. You know, he did Court TV. He did Dateline. You know, uh, I think Hoda made him look pretty bad. Um, oh, yeah. So he and he feels like in this instance, Grisham will always have a bigger microphone than he will. So he's going to lose mm. out. But, yeah, he just I think he's been burned. So you have these appeals that are open. And so sometimes documentarians will just like wait and wait and wait for something to happen which would make a a much tidier ending. When did you know it was time to say, okay, we're done, let's put it together and, and send it out in the world? We can't wait any longer for something else to happen. Yeah, the, the appeals process could go on forever. I mean, they, they've been, everything takes so long that you can't count on that. And we were hoping, we, we were all 
hoping that there was going to be some movement in the case and we were going to be there. They're, you know, they're filing paperwork. Great. We'll, we'll be around for when the judge comes back and says whether or not they're going to actually go to trial to, to look at uh, the new evidence or, but it just has been delayed, delayed, delayed. There's certain moments that I feel like we were, that give you a little feeling like this is something that's going to be a payoff or something that we've already shot or someone's already talked about. Mm. And for me, that's the, not to spoil too much here, but the moment with uh, Pepe and the belt in the final episode. Mm. Right. And Mark Barrett being able to sort of consolidate all of the evidence that we had been talking about and put it into one filing. Hmm. Just the the fact that he was about ready to file that and we were able to look at it and we were like, well, this is all the things that it's like in the show. <laughs> um, right. Thanks for writing our documentary yeah. for us. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. And um, no, Mark was great and he was, he really helped us out uh, throughout the whole process and talked to us many times on camera. And so as a storyteller, I feel like satisfying stories have good setups and payoffs. So I'm always in keeping an eye out for what could be set up early in an episode or two and then brought back in, you know, the the final final episode. Yeah. One of the interesting moments to me, it happens near the end. And it's really interesting, I think, where you placed it, because here we have had now a few hours of really getting into this story and sort of seeing how everything went wrong. But then we hear from... Um, Carl Allen, who I think comes off as very credible, former assistant police chief in Ada, who basically says this idea of this like broad reaching police conspiracy, arresting some suspects to you know cover up other crimes and so forth. It's just not something that I've ever seen any evidence of. You know, the idea that we get up in the morning and decide to do this is kind of absurd. First of all, I think it's really great that you put him in there because, you know, I think uh, it's tempting to not reinforce that side of the story when you've gotten as far into a film as you had at that point. Yeah. But also, you know, what did you think of that? I mean, do you think there is a systemic problem here? Is Carl just not seeing it? Uh, is he not being truthful about it? I mean, what do you see? What is Ada Oklahoma like? Or are the cops just not buying drugs yes. anymore from... Yeah, I mean, you've been <laughs> yeah. there. I mean, what do you actually think of, of this, this criminal justice community in this town? Yeah, I mean, I it I liked Carl Allen a lot, and I, I mean, like he, I I agree with you. It was almost alarming. I was like, oh my god, this guy just oozes integrity, and and I couldn't really get a read on it either. Of um, was he just not aware of it? You know, like I think the point needs to be made that this is not all police officers or all prosecutors or anything like that. It is something that is just takes one bad apple to spoil the bunch, you know? But this town, I think, is ripe in a couple different ways for abuses of power because it is so isolated and there's not really that many ways to hold those in power accountable. It is in a corridor of drug activity. It has been for, for a long, long time. Yeah, I think that the criminal justice system in Ada could, I don't know if it's as bad as it seemed to be a long time ago, but uh, the, the circumstances are still there. Hmm. It's not as uh, badly out of tune as Mark's piano then is. Maybe, <laughs> oh, huh? my God. Uh, <laughs> yes. I love, I love using <laughs> stuff like that. Like uh, any, <laughs> any person that played a musical instrument, I was like, do it for us on camera. Just play whatever you know. And Mark <laughs> sat down. He, he loved to play some blues piano. 
Uh, well, Clay Tweel, we loved the documentary. We really, we plowed through it. We, I think we binged it in, what, one day? <laughs> we ended up watching yeah. the whole thing. We couldn't stop. And it has been such a pleasure to talk to you about it. Thank you so much for uh, chatting with us. We really appreciate of it. Of course. Thanks for having me on, guys. That was series director Clay Tweel with Rebecca and Kevin. You can check out their podcast, Crime Writers On, wherever you listen to this show. And now let's listen to some dramatic interpretations of your reactions to The Innocent Man. At Izzy of Kate tweeted, My family used to always say, don't go to Ada, Oklahoma, you might not come back. It was a running joke. I just watched The Innocent Man on Netflix, and guys, the old people in my family aren't crazy. This tweet is from at Nathan Pop. Watching The Innocent Man on Netflix and hoping whoever's in charge of tourism in Ada has a much better 2019. This tweet is from at Rose McDee. She asks, Sarani was exonerated and that is good because he didn't murder Debbie. But what about the girl he assaulted who testified in court? If you want to share your thoughts on any Netflix true crime story, make sure to find us on social media. Just search for You Can't Make This Up Netflix. We're the ones with that shiny blue check mark. Before we let you go, let's find out what the people on this episode are watching on Netflix. It's time for What You Watching. I watched Bumping Mics on Netflix recently. I binged that mm. all in one night because I'm a big fan of uh, those comedians. I love Last Chance You. Greg Whiteley is an amazing filmmaker. I've known him for a while. And just like great verite and sports doc combined is, is right up my alley. Uh, as for me, my favorite Netflix binges that we, I, whether Kevin did it voluntarily or not, we sat on the couch together and couldn't get enough of, especially recently, we're Bodyguard. Uh, we really, that unbelievably handsome Richard Madden. Oh I can my do my God. impression. Go ahead. Vecchi! <laughs> Vecchi, where are you? Uh, we also, of course, I'm addicted to The Crown. I cannot wait for The Crown to come back. And Kevin, we had another favorite that like we talked a ton about on our own podcast, right? Oh, my God. Ozark. Yes. Oh. He's great. Atmospheric. Yes. Gotta love uh, Jason, Jason Bateman. Bateman. Yep. And now we know how to launder money, thanks yeah. to them. We really appreciate yeah. that. And, of course, there's Stranger Things. That goes without saying. <laughs> but Glow. Oh, yeah. What a great surprise. I actually have, and I'm not joking, a pair of Glow uh, socks, tube socks, tube socks. <laughs> what did you, what did you guys somebody? Think, what did you guys think of Mindhunter? Oh, oh, oh my God! I can't believe I forgot Mindhunter. Can't wait for it to come back. Yeah, cannot Can, wait. Who at Netflix do we have to yell at to make that come quicker? I gotta say, like we talk a lot about on our podcast about the maybe like BS field of of criminal profiling, and Mindhunter does that story in such a way that it does not dispel any one of, of my. my feelings about the quote-unquote science and the story is just brilliant and it's yeah. just done so so well we love yeah. everything about it. jonathan groff oh oh my god oh my god great. clay just reminded us of so many great things we got to look forward to <laughs> next season of the crown yeah next season of uh mine hunter yeah. well Ozark. I'll, I'll tell you yeah. one one little tidbit so one of the newspaper clippings in the uh in the innocent man the police, the local police reached out to John Douglas, the guy that Mindhunter is based off mm -hmm. of at the FBI, because Debbie Carter's crime scene was so brutal and crazy with writings on the wall. And um, mm. and so they reached out to him to get a psychological profile, just like in the show. Well, I'm sure we'll hear about that if it was if it actually had matched the person that they did it. We would have heard him come out and brag about it. Because that's the thing about profilers. <laughs> they love telling you when they were right. Exactly. You never hear about when they were wrong. <laughs> And that's it for this week's episode. 
You can find this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show. It helps other people find it and also makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Pineapple Street Media and Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Ray Vada, and thank you so much for listening.